I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And I'm David Clark. And we love to watch. We love to watch Steve Martin be an asshole. Invitation through the mail. Your presence requested this evening is formal. Top hat, white tie, and tail. Nothing now could take the wind out of my sail. Because I'm invited to step out this evening in top hat, white tie, and tail. Oh, I'm putting on the top hat. Tying up my white tie, brushing off my tail. Hey, Pete. Hey, David. Hi. Hi. <laughs> but yeah, thank you for coming on. Yeah, we're wrapping it up. We're wrapping up uh, Musical May 3, classic musicals for thee, uh, with a double feature, uh, which was actually uh, it's kind of the impetus for why we decided to go this route with our third incarnation of Musical May. But before we get into that, where we love to watch for movie podcasts, we pick a theme and each month we do a few movies around that theme. And if we remember, we compare and contrast them. And yeah, this is our third incarnation of Musical May. And we ended up doing classic movies uh, thanks to a suggestion by David Clark. We were talking to him after the last time he appeared on our show. And he we had said we were discussing whether to maybe do classic musicals or some other some other theme. And he said, you should do classic musicals and do Top Hat with Pennies from Heaven and compare them. And so that's what we did. Uh, Peter got really excited about the idea of Pennies from Heaven as a concept. I'm curious to hear what he thought in a little bit. But uh, that's kind of what we designed our month around. So it made sense to wrap it up with David doing Top Hat and uh, 1981's Pennies from Heaven. David, thanks for coming back on our show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, anything you want to besides that introduction? Do you want to introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, sure. Uh, you may know me uh, if you know me personally. Otherwise, you would not know me. Um <laughs> Uh, I'm an I'm an editor. I live in uh, New York City. I'm an editor at the Drawfee Channel. That's uh, Drawfee like coffee. D R A W F E E. And I do uh, I I edit their videos and um, and that's a uh, that's a fun that's my fun job. I also uh, dabble in oral history, um, which uh, currently doing with the anti eviction mapping project, uh, which is also. Uh, Maybe not fun is the wrong word, but it's just, uh, it's very good, I guess. And uh, <laughs> the other thing I like to do is uh, play Bloodborne and watch movies. Bloodborne has become <laughs> the only game that I play, and then I watch movies. Uh, I think I ended up beating it four or five times. I think at last I looked, I put like 180 hours into it. And uh, so, yeah. For those of you who came here for a musical talk, we're going to talk about Bloodborne. It's, it's mostly going to be Bloodborne. Also, this happened, you know, look, look, this happened when we talked about You've Got Mail, too. It's impo- it's impossible with Peter. It's it is I know you've kind of joined the club, but it is Peter and I the amount of things we relate to from software games is uh concerning for yeah. for our loved ones yeah. and our friends. I can't um, wait to oh, get you. I think Fred Astaire has some good moves. You should see me uh, in a fight against the uh, uh orphan Koss. Oh, you think uh Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers are dead? Well, Sekiro dies twice. Uh <laughs> they each died once. The dance between uh, Fred and Ginger is nothing compared to the dance that uh, that me and the Maria of the Astral Clock Tower do. <laughs> no, that is a dance. That's a two-phase dance, essentially. So yes, I actually haven't gotten that far. 
Okay, well, I'm a, so I'm a filthy liar. Spoilers for something that happens for in every Bloodborne boss. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, this is uh, you mean, what? <laughs> they change their move set. Uh, also, I believe David, some congratulations are in order. I believe you have a new title associated with your name. If you want to do that, a new title. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Maba. 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 You're my buh. Oh, I, 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 I forgot I did that. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they gave me the folder uh, last week, but I did it. I finished it in December. So, yeah, I've, I've got a master's degree now. In, um, and the folder to prove it. Yeah, and the folder to prove it. Uh, Congratulations. They give you, they give Do they give you a folder? wallet size? Like, like when you have kids and they have the photos in there? Because I did see that picture and it seems... They give you a watch. They just give you a watch. It's like... It's like Staying with a company for 50 years. <laughs> it's just to watch, watch his face say, better than you. The real the real gift was the memories, the friends we made along the way, and of course, the uh, the cr- crippling debt. <laughs> you know. That will, will live with me until I no longer walk this mortal plane. The crippling debt is just the gift that keeps on giving the whole year round, you know? It keeps taking and taking and taking. <laughs> I wouldn't worry. Society's going to collapse in five years top, so you're going to only have to pay it for a little bit. I think. Yeah, yeah so exactly. Just... After the after the blood moon, we'll be fine. Rack it up. <laughs> Rack it up. So, yeah, we are doing- Once Rom that. the Vacuous Spider's taken care of, everything's going to change. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also say congratulations for uh, your draw fee work. I've had a chance to dig in a little bit more, and it is super fun. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to do it. And I am very uh, happy and proud of the work I get to do there. It's great yeah, work. I've, it's I've really exciting couple... working with talented people. Yeah, speaking of from software games, I did watch the Dark Souls one and loved it. Oh, yeah, that's that's good. Yeah, we have uh, there's a Sekiro one now, too. Um, and there were there were a couple of other Dark Souls ones. There was one uh, that blew up, but it's it's Disney Souls. And so it was Disney <laughs> characters done in the style of Dark Souls bosses. Um, and then there's a sequel to that also done during my tenure. We pump these things out fast. Um, it was Disney Souls 2. And that was basically uh, Dis- uh, Dark Souls bosses done in the style of Disney characters. Oh. So if you ever wanted to see what Bambi looked like as a Dark Souls boss or what Gwyn the Lord of Cinder looks like as a Disney character, a charming Disney character, a kooky Disney character, <laughs> well, here's your chance. Uh, Smog, Smog gets done. Uh, Sif, of course, Sif. It's it's some, some fun episodes. Well, if Square can partner with Disney for a game, hopefully Why not from those soft. videos can we can inspire from to to make to make Disney Souls. Uh, finally, I want I want Team Ninja to do a blue blue sky entertainment game. <laughs> uh, finally, the last thing I'll congratulate uh, you on is appearing with us on this podcast to um, talk uh, thank about you, two movies. Yeah, uh, yeah, we're going to talk about two movies. Uh, they are two movies that I've seen before. I believe they're two movies that you've seen before, David. Um, these were both uh, newbie boobies, as we say, <laughs> for the first and last time uh, for for Peter uh, Moran. Uh, so one thing we've been doing, and we do have to get into it because we have two whole movies to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we've been doing every week this month. Peter, before we get into it, what were your general thoughts of these movies? And before... The other question I want you to answer first, because that's the or- this is how you ask questions, is had you seen any Astaire Rogers movies before this? No, and he, his face is very long. Um, pictures do not do justice. It appears to uh, extend out 
Uh, like his chin appears to have an, er- an er- erection quality to it. Uh, when he gets excited and he starts singing, it appears to extend out inches and inches, and then it retracts. But back it looks into less face. psychopathic than Gene Kelly's. I think you'd agree. Uh, yeah, Gene Kelly. Uh, <laughs> Gene Kelly's is. Uh, yeah, Gene Kelly looks like he would chop you into pieces. Fred Astaire just looks like he's like a happy doll man. He's having a good time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, apparently, he's a very big fan of uh, of uh, Pennies from Heaven, but we'll get into that. Uh, no, we'll talk about that. Yeah. yeah. Wait. So you, you weren't? Oh no. Yeah. Stare hated it. Yeah. Yeah. We'll so, but yeah, I uh, I had a great time with this month. It, it getting to delve into some of these classics and getting them getting them kind of uh, pushed on me. <laughs> Frankly, you're a pusher, Aaron. Uh, well, this this whole the reason we've done three of these is because Peter's like, "Fuck you, Aaron. I hate musicals. I would like to do anything but a musical month." And I'm like, "That gives me an idea for a month about <laughs> musicals with you, Peter, my co-host who hates musicals." And we've done it though. Like you enjoy musicals, and these um, uh, we haven't recorded our West Side Story episode, but that comes out that came out last week, so I don't know the reaction, and we'll save that. Uh, but these were the musicals very specifically that you were like, I don't like those. <laughs> like these types. Yeah. So I, I actually – so our first – not to jump back too far, but our first musical, May, I feel like was kind of came out of that that an, uh, antagonism. And I was like – I think you were like, let's do a bunch of musicals that people like and let's see where the chips fall. Uh, and let's see if, if we can convert Peter. And uh, that month didn't really work. Well, so it was we about evaluating Xanadu, movies that neither So didn't you watch, like, fucking Newsies that month? Yeah. So People love that movie. It's, a, it's a children's movie, though. Like, So yeah. here was the mistake. The idea was... <laughs> the idea was is that let's watch musicals that neither of us had seen. Yeah. I like musicals. He doesn't. And we can watch them both with fresh eyes. So I'm not sitting there all month going... But this is great, Peter. Like, we can both evaluate them fresh. Now, the problem is there's yeah. just not that many good musicals that I haven't seen. Um, and so, we, we kind of – we did Teen Witch. We did Xanadu. Uh, you did Cabaret, you know. We did we did Cabaret. Which, I mean, you both have a right to be, like, wrong about, but that's fine. <laughs> Cabaret was, from a movie's perspective – uh, the second best one that we did, I think, it just was – it wasn't that exciting to talk about. And uh, – but we also did something that Peter had never seen that I did. We we made one exception. I think we did – you're right. We did a five-movie month to, to really, really drag it out. But we made one exception because I just really wanted Peter to see it and that was Phantom of the Paradise. And Peter fucking loved that movie. And I think that one movie that Peter uh, that I that I had a feeling Peter would like kind of grew into then him starting to watch some musicals on his own without any parental supervision, uh, and then eventually that led to to last year where we're like, hey, let's do a bunch of stuff we know you're gonna like. And so yeah, this this really is kind of full circle of here were the ones that you I think in your head were like, I don't like these. Uh, as a con- I don't like 60s musicals and I'm not interested in 30s tap dance. One of our first conversations in the dissolve was I don't like singing in the rain, even though as you mentioned, you only saw it as a kid. Like this this is a this is a this, yeah, is, this a is interesting it. turn. Yeah. Yeah. Singing in the rain is a lot easier to watch than something like Top Hat too, I think. Top Hat is is not 
like Singing in the Rain is an extraordinary movie. I think Top Hat is a is extraordinary in its representation. It's it's how it's representative of the whole genre. So if you don't like musicals, I like I don't know what you're going to do with Top Hat. So it's, I'm very interested to hear what you thought. Yeah, the, yeah. I, I was really positive on this whole month so far. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Aaron, can I talk about not liking West Side Story at any point? No, this month this month is over. Yeah, from the listener's oh, okay. perspective, uh, I was West, actually, West Side Story is complicated. Yeah, yeah. I, I was. So let me let me retake that then. So uh, yeah, I was really positive on movies this month, except for West Side Story. Even something as uh, even as something as formalistically a musical as Top Hat, where like there's not a whole lot to glom onto if you're not interested in the tap dancing or the singing. And I was interested in the tap dancing and the singing. Uh, I eventually lost some interest towards the end because it's it's a, a very simple comedy of errors that I think kind of outsta- overstays its welcome. But the actual singing and dancing sequences, the parts that I thought were going to be so like offensive, were like. The, the the bright points and in a very different way the singing and dancing sequences in pennies from heaven were the bright points um not to say i didn't enjoy what was in between but this movie is so fucking bleak that <laughs> it's so bleak that you yeah. it's like it would be entirely unpalatable without the the oh it would be a slog it would be an utter slog and not that i like but look look without the without the the slog it's not a slog and without those scenes in between i think the 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 singing and dancing has no meaning so it it, the way that those scenes talk to each other is so fascinating to me and i i said to pete because he was talking a little we were texting a little bit last night about pennies from heaven and i said yeah i think it's a masterpiece that i don't enjoy watching that often yeah that's kind of my take like i haven't seen it in 15 years and i remember every scene from it and then i watched it again and my heart was sinking the whole movie i like yeah it's a hard movie to watch it had been about 10 years i since i saw it uh i but i think i watched it the first time when I was in college, it had probably been like 16, 17 years ago, and I, I was just trying to watch Steve Martin movies. I didn't know what this fucking thing was. Oh, it's an early Steve Martin movie. It'll yeah. Be funny. I, yeah, I was trying to watch, like, so I watched The Jerk, and I watched Dead Man Wear Plaid, and I, or Don't Wear Plaid, and I watched uh, The Man with Two Brains. I'm like, another early Steve Martin movie. Can't wait. And, but it was, it took me only about 20 or 30 minutes, because I, you know, I, I was a big fan of musicals to kind of get what was going on, and then being like, I think I love this. But man, it just turns that screw for the, I like I forgot that it really it starts with the screw all the way like to the board and then just fucking wrenches it yeah. for another hour and 40 minutes. It is relentless in its misery and suffering, but like but still like I, I a complete masterpiece. I but also anyway. thought this was too early for serious steve martin i thought that this was it's the second fucking movie yeah I well th- he quit stand-up so soon like he his his career has been about defying those expectations and like i think he would have done it more but this was a huge flop right so yeah. like you know he, i think he wanted to do this kind of thing but uh, hollywood was a different place and maybe he had the clout to do it but i i mean it sounds like he didn't have that for a little while after you know yeah and it and it's re-teaming him with bernadette peters like I, there's no wonder audiences were confused, right? Like, <laughs> I, said, I mean, this creative team is is one of the most stacked you'll ever see. Like, oh Gordon my God. Willis, Bob Mackie, Herbert Ross, um, yeah, Christopher Walken. Like, just the, the the team behind this 
is entirely stacked. It's just uh, like it's it's kind of incredible when you look at those opening credits. Oh, uh, Marvin Hamlish worked on the yeah. orchestration. Well, yeah, it's it, but it is crazy. Like Martin obviously gravitated towards um for uh, good collaborate good collaborators. Um, but yeah, this being his second movie and really going to a serious like despicable version of himself, but. It is kind of like if Tom Hanks like followed big with like a a movie where he just kicked a puppy for an hour and a half while singing Lover Boys working for the weekend or some shit like it is. Oh, the terminal. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. But even, you know, even after this, which was a big flop, uh, the next movie after this is Dead Man Don't Wear Plaid, which is also an insane movie. It's a comedy, but like. Let's insert myself into a bunch of 40s uh, noir movies uh, to tell a different story, piecing all these like characters together. And then he follows that with uh, the brain that – not the brain that wouldn't die. Um, the Man with Two Brains, which also – both of those movies are kind of flops. And that's like a weird, what if I'm unlikable and stupid and crazy? And I like all four of his first movies – but he really was kind of just letting his creative thing fly. And it's not the late 80s that he starts doing stuff like Parenthood and Planes, Trains and Automobiles and kind of settles into like grumpy dad Steve Martin. But, man, his first few movies were just insane. I thought it was more of a transition, right? Like I thought it was like My Blue Heaven was the first one of those movies where people were like, he's kind of a dick. And then uh, <clears throat> everything else followed, right? And like by the time he was playing like a sad sap uh, you know, a little melancholy uh, guy and uh, it's complicated. Like that was when he had fully settled into that role, right? And everybody could accept him as like a, you know, a melancholy middle-aged guy. But like I did not expect this early on. Like I was expecting wild and crazy guy, not a uh, wild asshole and uh, <laughs> crazy, uh, crazy misogynistic. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he's unredeemable from frame one and then sinks lower. Um, but that that kind of wild and crazy guy manic energy still, I think, like that bank scene was really where I was sold on the movie for the first time. Like as I was watching it, not expecting it, like because there's that first musical number where you're kind of like, what the fuck is going on? Like, is he lip singing a 30s? Is that, is that what's going to happen during this movie? Uh, and then when he goes to get the loan and has that giant production number at the bank and you're like oh and he's doing the wild and crazy guy um facial expressions and gestures and all that kind of stuff but it's like devoid of of real joy and fun it's all like a shadow of that and and there's something in that that is just like some level of genius with those two things colliding that just makes it like both enjoyable to watch those sequences while also feeling like you're skin crawling. Yeah, his throughout. his character Arthur um, is it's he's he's man. You say he's irredeemable, and I think that his actions are. But I think as a character, just watching him is that the the thing that makes him work is a is the fact that it's Steve Martin performing him, and he's he's got this like just inherently likable quality to him him his himself. So you kind of forgive him longer than you should maybe as an audience member. But th there's also the element of there's an element of sense of even if he's lying, there's a lot of sincerity to the way he's saying things. And there, it's it's like he's an open wound, you know, walking through this world. It's not like he's actively trying to hurt people. He's 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 acting as this sort of petulant child throughout. I, it kind of reminds me a little bit of. Um, have you seen uh, Eastbound and Down? Yeah, 
He's very much. I feel like uh, like uh, the main character in that. What's his name? Um, Kenny Powers. Kenny Powers. Kenny Powers is very much an Arthur Parker type character. I won't say Arthur Par- Parker is a Kenny Powers type because uh, Arthur came first. But uh, it's it's in that sort of there's false epiphanies. There's constantly moving from one thing to the next. It's it's just it's it's very much a representation of of somebody who's been poisoned by the the soul of America while while America is sick and while that that kind of like lie of the American dream is a lot harder to believe. Um, for the for the normal person somebody who might still believe that you know might be might be driven to some pretty extreme horrible behavior that's a really good interpretation because it it, i think by the end of it the only thing that i could really hold on to is that like this guy is a dreamer who just got stepped on again and again and again. Um, it's just that he's also taking out that resentment about having that lost dream on everyone around him. So it it, it makes him uh, really hard to get behind. Yeah, it's yeah. He's the, there's the there's the lie of the songs that he loves so much and that that are that are sold th- sung throughout. And you know, there's there's the implication of a lot of these songs. These you know, it's either sexual or you know, success based. And then there's the reality, which is he lives in a prudish country. He lives in a country that's broke. He is you know the, the things that he he hears about in these songs. He doesn't actually he's he's not even sure that they're real. Which is why when he meets Eileen, it's such a big deal for him when she says she suggests that he she believes even half of what he does um because it's 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 this realization that to him that that the things that he hears about might actually exist but he's just sort of willing trying to will his own sort of childish view of what can be into existence and it's it's i i I, when i think of him i don't think of him as my my first thought about him is not unlikable. It's it's sad. I get sad when I think about oh, his he's character. He's a pitiful character, and he and he reaches. Yeah. A pit, and yet his end is also so. I don't want. I, I don't want to overstep. Yeah, but yeah, his end is is also. Uh, yeah, you uh, should uh, watch the movie if you're listening. To yeah, this. he does not. He does not deserve yeah. it. But but yeah, I think it's important but to put this uh, into. A, I think it's important okay. to put this into a context that this is not a straight ahead musical. This is a musical with an acerbic bite. It has it has a little bit of the cabaret thing. And I also want to talk about our history um, with Musical May going backwards because I think this movie accomplishes for me um, what Cabaret was trying to accomplish. Uh, This at least – I'm not saying one is more successful than the other, but I'm saying for me one – that sort of discordant tone between real life tragedy and on stage uh, flamboyance and and uh, silliness and free frolickingness, uh, that sort of uh, dichotomy um, made more sense to me here than it did for Cabaret. So it is fun to have one of these these movies kind of click but i i think i think it's interesting to also frame these movies in terms of when they came out too which is that when cabaret came out i think it's important to sort of be aware of like where the musical was at that point and it was still there was still a viability of the musical as a sustainable genre even if it was just a very unlikely thing the the musical you know it wasn't too long it's po- prior it's to post that. 60s yeah it's post 60s but it's barely post 60s right and it's yeah. it wasn't too long before that 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 um you know bob fossey had directed sweet charity which is a very straightforward musical um that was done to make money right um the broadway musical is still getting adapted into film at that point even though that was sort of around the time that it kind of slowed down quite a bit so 
although it's it is commenting and changing the musical it's changing what the musical form could be and what the musical could look like and what the musical could be about whereas i think pennies from heaven is not a musical of of a studio that's making musicals it is a revisionist musical it's the difference between a western of the time and that maybe was changing things and moving things forward and something like unforgiven so i would put this more into that sort of like the the genre has already existed and had its moment and by 81 it was over right and so i think this is looking back at that uh, from from a pretty far distance and f- from a a place of not necessarily like this is not a, a studio film that was expected to make a ton of money um, the budget was pretty high i mean 25 million dollars and you can tell like this is an expensive movie it looks expensive um oh for sure yeah based on the sequences i mean i think it's something like 70 some million dollars for for the budget so yeah it was it was a flop but it um you're you're right like i think i think what the 80s and the 90s are generally considered like the most like ho-hum musical like decades for movies i you know there's not that many it feels like in the late '90s and early two or early 2000s, there was kind of the revival with Chicago and some and Moulin Rouge in the very end of the '90s. But yeah, the like the '70s musicals also died off, and and this is like there, there's not that much unless there's someone forgetting besides like Disney's musicals. Yeah, I mean it was mainly Disney. I think you had like uh, you had Crybaby. Evita was Evita was the big one, I guess. Newsies, yeah, it was a lot of Disney stuff, um, and it was a lot of cartoons. Yes, it is. It is a revisionist musical, and in that sense, it feels like it, it's uh, very much in keeping with the late seventies. It has a sort of d- despair to it. It has a post-Vietnam, uh, you know, post-Nixon kind of despair. It feels to me like an Altman movie um, about like the death of something great. Um, it, 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 I really associate it with like McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Um, where it feels like it was, yes, revisionist, revisionist of a, of a genre work and almost sort of denying you the, the pleasures that you would typically get with a work like this. Um, and yet also giving them to you in a weird sense, right? Like, so that, that's, that's really what I associate with this, even though it's technically a 1981 movie, I deeply associate it with, with the acerbic, acidic sort of late seventies movies that we got. Yeah, I, 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 I agree tonally. It definitely feels like I think this movie's successful for like two reasons, uh, and and some of that is that kind of you like you're right, like McCabe and Mrs. Miller, like looking back on ho- the Hollywood genres of, of previous time and having like something new to say about them. Uh, and this, I mean, this one really feels like someone looking back at like the top hats and the swing times and the other musicals and almost having an, um, somewhat of a, maybe not an ax to grind, but that same sort of tone of like, Hey, remember all those opulent, like, like we just watched top hat. We're going to talk about top hat where they're just, you know, they're all rich and they're on this cruise liner and they're, you know, tap dancing and having fun and going to New York. And, you know, they're all kind of like that. At a time when, you know, most people were suffering like the collapse of the American dream and bread lines and the Great Depression and, you know, extreme poverty and the Dust Bowl. And, you know, Hollywood is kind of portraying this magical world that true, truly was escapism for a lot of people, but didn't actually uh, reflect uh, the, the the time that it was set in for the most part. 
And so, like, having this movie that kind of takes that kind of escapism and, and the music of the time and puts it in, like, um, puts it in the mouth and of, like, real Americans at that time, that what they were going through, I think, is just fascinating to watch that dichotomy. And then also, I think it does something amazing of uh, taking these songs from the 30s that probably by the time I heard them or uh, most people heard them and, like, you know, the background of a Bioshock game. And I understand this from the 80s and shit like that. But, uh, like, these these songs feel, like, almost removed from context and you don't even really listen to the lyrics. And so, like, putting these songs in context and, like, fitting them into a story where the lyrics have meaning in a way that they probably didn't for you the first time that you heard them is also just uh, fascinating and amazing. And it does the same thing with images, too. I mean, there's the, there's the Nighthawks woman... Um uh there's 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 uh, i'm i'm on the wikipedia page for the movie and there's four different tableau vivants in the film um famous paintings that are done in the movie yeah. and they're, they're kind of that's that's another example of taking that iconography and recontextualizing it and getting into it like thinking about like oh well, who are these people that could be inside of there this is not there's a reason that these images resonated with people of the time or why these this music resonated um, during that time period. But, you know, also getting beyond that, I, I think it's I think it's both decontextualizing or recontextualizing and deconstructing the musical and, you know, the time period. While also, I think it's not that simple to just say that it's doing that either, because it's also, I think, a very emotional film about what it means to be human and what it means to experience yearning. And, and so I think it works on just an emotional moment to moment level while also acting as this kind of deconstruction of, of, of what people were experiencing in, in their, in their entertainment life and their art life uh, of the time. So it's, 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 it's kind of a tricky act that it's doing and it's, it's pulling all that off with, you know, these gorgeous images too. I think it benefited. I think your suggestion was spot on. Like watching this directly after Top Hat, there it, it definitely feels to open up a little bit of the messaging uh, of or or what or the decontextualization or recontextualization. Just because it is like, oh yeah, look at these side by side. Like to the point that you get the Astaire Rogers musical number in this movie, which we'll I'm sure we'll talk more about. Yeah, follow the fleet. Yes. Yeah, follow the fleet. Um, and watching that right after watching one of those movies where, you know, there's not a reference to anything going on, it really does add to the uh, bleakness of Pennies from Heaven. And it's not I – didn't, I didn't know that Pennies from Heaven could get more bleak. But if you watch it right after the movies that it's commenting on, uh, it is like, oh, yeah. You could just – you just feel it. You feel like what was being presented – uh, at at the movie theaters as as escapism, and then like uh, contrast that with their the the apartments that they lived in and the 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 sales routes they were on and all that kind of stuff. So um, I think we're already really getting into pennies from heaven. I think it actually probably makes sense sense to start there. Talk about top hat top. Do you want to start there or go to top hat first? <sighs> Feels weird to end on top hat because pennies from heaven is comedy. Yeah, what, it's like watching top hat. Watching top hat after pennies from heaven would be really difficult because <laughs> yeah. of what you, you just, just said. Like, and I think the same lies, thing was Fred. talking about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh fuck yourself, ginger. Get out of here, both so of you. I, so I'd say we definitely talked a lot about the theming of pennies from heaven. We can get into more plot and some other stuff later on. I say we do a little musical break. We go into Top Hat, talk about it for 
30 minutes, 45 minutes, and then wrap up with more pennies from heaven. Because my guess is that that's where a lot of our energy wants to wants to go. Yeah. Cool. Sounds let's good. All right. Let's take a quick break. Well, I don't know why I'm saying that. <laughs> to, to this. That's not what we say. Uh, are you guys ready to talk about Top Hat? I tip my Top Hat to to skip alternate taglines because no one fucking likes it except us and it's just a habit at this point so we're gonna go right into the plot of top hat i just made the sign of the cross <laughs> great it is uh adapted from every episode of frazier uh story-wise uh in a time machine type situation uh but no uh, so uh, fred astaire is sees ginger rogers and is like i like her but ginger rogers thinks that he's horace who's married to her friend and so after they dance and kind of flirt and have fun he she's like how dare horace who is not horace cheat on um there's so many notes about her now i'm forgetting her name uh cheat on madge madge yeah you forgot madge I just forgot the name momentarily. But How I, could you forget Madge? She's my favorite character in the movie that doesn't dance. Well, she's actually my favorite character in the movie, but the dancing is my favorite part of the movie. Really? Anyways. It's not It's not Alberto Bedini? Yeah. Uh, was it Vigali? That should be that – sh- that character, I'm surprised, didn't start like World War Three <laughs> or two. <laughs> two. I mean, the movie thinks he's the worst too, so I think it all works together. But anyways, uh, yeah, so Farce uh, concludes and – they they kind of do like a this is a weird reference point like a that that episode of Friends where uh, Phoebe and uh, Rachel keep fucking with Chandler and Monica to show that they're dating where they see how far they can take their fake flirting with the other one uh, to go before they kind of call their bluff but of course Fred Astaire is like no bluff to call I just like you Ginger but I'll pretend that we met in France and if we get married great so anyways they. Uh, sh- Ginger Rogers is like, I'm going to marry Vingali. And, uh, but they don't actually get married because the butler was faking it because he was spying and then blah, blah, blah. They, they sort the whole thing out. Everyone's happy. And, uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Not Vingali, Bedini. Vendini. Bedini, played by Eric Rhodes, born in Oklahoma. Sven Gulli? Sven, Sven Gulli? (laughs) I'm pretty sure it's Sven Gulli. Bedini's one of these, like, Oh, that's like the stereotype that Bed- everything that Bedini represents is just everything that America at that time was afraid of. I think. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, he's a, he's a big goof. Uh, everyone's kind of a big goof. I actually, I'll say this. Um, so the I, first time I watched this was directly after Swing Time uh, a while ago, and I think Swing Time has a more interesting plot that isn't based on farce. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen Swing Time, but I feel like Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire are basically like partners and, and friends and lovers from the beginning. And there's something about that that makes it a little more fun uh, because there's not this kind of convoluted plot. And I think the singing and dancing numbers in general are better in Swing Time. 
Uh, so watching this right after swing time uh, suffered a little bit in comparison. There's less dancing, which is the best part of any of these movies. And there's a lot more convoluted, uh, wacky hijinks. Uh, but watching it in a vacuum made me appreciate it even more. I always liked it quite a bit. Uh, but I, I actually kind of enjoyed, like, Peter, you mentioned the plot didn't do too much for you. Uh, I actually f- was sort of engaged with the plot. Like, it's it's silly. And it's not that consequential. But, like, especially all the Madge stuff of her, like, l- like not caring and... Like, I actually found it pretty funny in a way that I, I don't think I did the first time. I was just time. like, yeah, she's okay with her husband and being in an open relationship. Fine. Who gives a shit? And she just sock him in the face <laughs> when but she finds out. there's that part where they're like It's dancing. 2019. I can't be, I can't be uh, 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 scandalized by a woman being okay with her husband flirting. Well, it's not scandalized. Just her, her general enthusiasm is so good. There's that part where they're dancing. And Fred Astaire just is like, I'm dancing with Ginger Rogers. This is nice at the at the actual dance. And Ginger Rogers gives this look to Madge, like, is this okay how close we're dancing? And her, like, wink and, like, pushing her hands forward and giving kind of a, like, a not a thumbs up, but, like, that kind of encouragement smile and winks. Like, that made me laugh out loud. There was something so enthusiastic about her uh, supporting, like, in, in that farce that, like, was was funny in a way that I don't, you know, I don't always laugh out loud at these 30s hijink-based comedies, but I appreciate it more that time around. In terms of the plot and the scenarios, and so I think this has some of the just most delightful setups, too, which is just the first scene has that classic, like, in the quiet room, you know, he's he's around all those stuffy guys that won't even let him, like do the newspaper thing. And normally I think it was kind of a dick move to just start tap dancing around them. But, you know, yeah, I think that that's good praxis in this case. Um, you Especially know, in a movie where uh, compared to pennies from heaven, because we did pair them together. If I would watch them in the other order, I would have been like, who gives a shit? You don't have any problems. You're rich as shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. I was supposed to care exactly. about you people. Go be rich somewhere. <laughs> Date someone else. That's pretty and can tap dance. I don't care. I'm sure there's a thousand of them. Yeah, and there's also like the, the like I think the part where he is driving the carriage for Ginger Rogers and pretending to be the the handsome cab driver, and then starts like doing the tap dancing on the back, so she like it's like the telltale feet or something like that. Like, um, like those moments are really charming, like and and funny. The most memorable scene in this entire movie to me is probably like when he's how they meet, how he's tap dancing out of just pure joy and being like fancy free. Um, And she hears it and is annoyed. And it's, I think that's such a good scene. It was actually referenced in, um, have you seen the dreamers? Oh yeah. That's one of the, that's the, yeah, the, the Bertolucci movie. It's, it's one of the, it's one of the scenes that they reference in, in the dreamers as like one of the great moments in cinema. Uh, And I think it's just such a, a simple kind of like, representation of what these movies were um it's he's dancing for no other reason than he's 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 happy and free and ready for love you know and like then he his his expression of joy literally wakes up the love of his life that he doesn't yeah. hasn't met yet it's kind of just like a nice beautiful little little thing it's funny and it's it's sweet and it's a little stupid but i i you know i think it's kind of that's the joy of this this type of movie Fred Astaire loves dancing so much, it's fucking annoying. (laughs) 
it is it is in some ways you could say this is like this is like a porno uh where he's just like oh an excuse for me to dance an excuse for me to fuck the the, but let's get to the genre goods yeah i I don't know well look 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 he likes to dance like john wick likes to kill you know it's it's the same thing (laughs) oh i'm sorry is your is your gramophone broken (laughs) (laughs) it's something i both love about this movie and is the only thing that i grow tired of by the end which is that yes the comedy of error stuff does kind of drain on me but at a certain point like I, I find myself seeing in his like smug, really long, just incredibly long face, almost like that guy at a college party who can play guitar and insists on doing it, even though no one else is talking about guitar or anything similar. It has a sort of quality of like that. He's like, oh, you want me to dance? And you're like, no, no one mentioned dancing. He's like, I'll dance a little. I could do a little two step. I want to live in that world that you just described. The hardest of possible disagrees. Like I and I don't know what it is. We talked in Singing in the Rain that even though I liked musicals, I didn't really. Uh, it, it took a little bit longer for me to appreciate um, dancing in movies, where I was like, "Get to the singing, I get it with the tapping and the moving and the stuff like that." And then I watched like uh, Singing in the Rain. I get it with your like, tappity tap. Yeah, like it, it. Like I didn't appreciate it, and I don't know why. And it wasn't until I saw Singing in the Rain when I was like sixteen or seventeen that I'm like. Oh, I like something clicked for me. And it was a couple years after that that I watched uh, Swing Time and then uh, Top Hat. And I was just and I still feel this way. Like I I can't even quite describe it where like them in the gazebo or all these moments of them dancing together in this like this way that. I can't even like describe it, it gives me some feeling of like I could watch this forever to the point that this always happens when I watch in Astaire Rogers movies and I've seen uh, this and Swing Time probably a dozen times each and I've seen uh, uh, Shall We Dance and The Gay Divorcee and oh, I love The Gay Divorcee yeah and like this is what always happens like 15 minutes into watching a Fred Astaire and Rogers movie. Like, I need to watch more of these. Do I own them all? Is there some I haven't seen that's on Amazon I can rent next? Like, they're like to the point that as I'm Follow watching the them, I just, yeah, I'm just craving more. Like, knowing that this is going to end and the dancing is going to stop. I just want more of this. And so, and, it's, and I agree that's kind of maybe a weird reaction to watching these, but there is something about Fred Astaire tap dancing, and then especially when paired with Ginger Rogers tap dancing, that is just like, oh yeah, I could watch eight hours of this. And I think this movie in particular, like, you want to talk about why this movie is special of the of the Astaire Rogers movies? And I think it's not that the dancing's any better or anything like that. I think it's it's the Irving Berlin music. You know, these, yeah. these it's one of the greatest you know early American songwriters ever. <clears throat> certainly one of the most prolific and successful but just at the top of his game uh, i hate that cliche um i hate that i used it and i hate myself for saying it um but like cheek to cheek and top hat white a top hat white tail italian tails and just all these songs are just so much fun and just like they just scratch the itch that you have as some it's just like if you're into musicals you've got this little itch that that just gets 
if you have that bug, it just it scratches it so well. You know what I mean? I had a grin from ear to ear for almost all the songs. Uh, Wouldn't you say cheek to cheek? From the I lyrics, was cheek to cheek. The lyrics are so simple and like and silly, but the the, the rhymes and the the jokes within in them are you know they're so simple, but they're so satisfying too. And there's something about them that's just pleasing to hear those rhymes sung you know very well and clearly. It just it's. It's 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 very pleasing. It has it has an, an utmost elegance which matches the setting of it, right? It's it's uh, it's a movie about high society people living their high society life, um, and in, in a way that doesn't enrage you. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it that sort of sense of elegance is really really what. Uh, makes those songs click because they don't feel forced. They don't feel aggressive. They just feel like they're they're, they're fun and kooky little little cute songs about uh, young love and how innocent it is and two people expressing themselves but not always expressing themselves well. But you have the sense that everything's going to work out in the end. Yeah, and there is uh, like there's something about the two of them too. Like when Fred Astaire's dancing, it's great. When you know the Gene Kellys of the world are dancing, it's it's a little more. It feels less like a floating on a cloud, angelic, and more like really workhorsey. But it's still like amazing. But there is something when I watch those two dance together as these kind of complicated things where they're like in perfect sync. That there's something like in my brain that. Uh, kind of reminds me of the way that people talk about like whether it's true or not why spiders creep you out and that like they they move in a almost an alien way that your brain doesn't quite comprehend so as such like you're watching it you're just getting creeped out and there's like some sort of like evolutionary thing that hits in your brain that's like I don't know what is I'm seeing I can't quite process it but I don't like it so it's like when I see those two dance together, it's like that but for pure unadulterated joy where I'm just like, I don't quite understand how they're doing this, but I like I can't stop watching it. I also think like there's the, the top hat white tie. Um, like I, I think it's he's got some good cane work in that scene. I mean, here's a guy who's like top of the game with his feet and they're like, I don't know, use your arms now, bud. <laughs> and he does a good job there, too. He's got good cane work. Oh, great yeah, cane yeah. work. Really great A plus. Yeah, he's uh he's a bit of a he's a bit of a cane man, I would say. Uh he's a man of many talents. Uh I will say oh though, however, this movie does not if you have... didn't like the if you didn't like that cane stuff, I would have been this is a cane mutiny. Cane <laughs> <laughs> train was pulling into the station for me, okay? Can we talk about the video game Kane and Lynch now? (laughs) Uh, Again? Yeah. I don't know if it made it into whatever episode we just talked about it, but Peter spent 10 minutes talking about Kane and Lynch 2, Dog Days. I don't want to talk about the sequel. I want to talk about the original. Okay, we got a space for it. Uh, The Kane work work in that that game is not great, but the Kane work uh, is also not great. Yeah, I I liked the Lynch work in 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 uh, Top Hat. I liked how Lynch worked in Top Hat. He worked he worked it. Yeah, I I liked the way he worked it as well. No diggity, yeah. no doubt. So I have an even better transition. So the, I think the one musical number that probably went to pass a choreography test is the one where he murders all of his backup dancers one by one. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, do we have that kind of feels like here here. Come together, boys. I got a great idea. What if I take shots at them one at a time and they go down in flames like a boom, pow, shotgun to the face? Do we have like, Do we have a way out of this tangent? 
You get it? A Isn't way it? out. A way out. <laughs> a way out. It's co-op game. A way out. Oh. Recent, recent co-op indie hit. Mm-hmm, a way out. Mm-hmm. You break out of prison. Yeah, with your or brother. Or if you're bad, you just be are in prison. You're in, you're in prison. I didn't play it. I didn't play Kane and Lynch, nor did I play A Way Out. I forgot A Way Out was a thing. I'm like, are you trying to get us into the Costner Hackman, Hackman <laughs> movie, or what's happening? Uh, Top Hat is a good movie. Um, uh, this was actually their most successful movie together. Um, it was RKO's kind of, most successful movie ever, I think, right? Yeah, and uh, it uh, it was kind of had mixed reviews at the time, uh, mainly because the plot of this movie follows very closely to The Gay Divorcee, which came out just uh, a couple years before this. So there there was a lot of um, praise, obviously, for the, the tap dancing and the, the, the songs and stuff like that. But from a plot perspective, there was a lot of, uh, are you seriously remaking a movie that came out four years ago? And yes, they were. Yeah, they were. And we were all okay with it. All the time. I first heard of this movie from uh, Ebert's um, Great Movies. Uh, it, it, was, it was probably when I was in high school or college. It was like Top Hat. And I had never heard of it. Um, and I end up uh, also at the same time, uh, the uh, second version of or some AFI list had Swing Time on there. So I was like, oh, interesting. Okay, I'll, I'll watch both of these. They were on TCM all the time. I think I T-vote them or I got them from Netflix disc or something. And um, – it, I remember watching both and only remembering that Top Hat was on Ebert's Great Movies list. And I'm like, man, like I said, Top Hat's good, but it feels like Swing Time is, is like the best of these. And then I went back and found that, yes, uh, Ebert had done a great movies on that like five years earlier. Um, but Swing Time has some unfortunate things that are probably not worth getting into in this podcast. Uh, but uh, how many – so I, th- I think the question is ha- – how many of these have you seen, David, uh, when it comes to the Astaire Rogers movies? Are you as big a fan as I am? And then Peter, uh, having seen this, are you willing to go seek out more of these? Or are you kind of like, I got it, the singing, the tap dancing? To be honest, I I think I've got it. But uh, if somebody recommended one on like a filmmaking level, I would totally dive in. I don't know if there's one to recommend on a filmmaking level. <laughs> yeah, like if there's one that like you, you think is like impressive as like a film itself or is really like breezy and cute, like awesome. But like, you know, I think I got Fred Astaire's thing. <laughs> um, uh, and then I guess then the other question, Peter, who's a, who did you like watching Dancing better? Was it Kelly or Astaire? I would much rather watch Gene Kelly dance because he has a more diverse style and he bounces between tap and ballet and, and uh, all these other styles that I don't know the name of. Um, Whereas uh, Fred Astaire, salsa in there. He's got a thing, but it's tap. The thing is tap. Yeah. Hard agree. Uh, Astaire is, I I think Astaire is like definitely fucks. Oh, and that's, that's, that's the, that's the Fred Astaire thing, honestly. Um, Whereas, Gene Kelly is athletic and charming and funny, and there's like an intelligence to his dance. Um, it, it makes sense that he was a choreographer as well, and and really wanted to be a director and was a yeah. director. Um, you know, he he's he's got a thoughtfulness. He's got you know the way G- Jackie Chan is thought of as a, a fighter, as a fight choreographer and and um, martial artist. That's I mean, he, he draws a lot of inspiration from Kelly because of the way Kelly will take elements of the environment, incorporate them and really bring he brings a level of theatricality um, 
to what he does that's so interesting and always like always so engaging and there's always there's always some special element to a Gene Kelly dance it's never just a dance it's always a well he's gonna dance and dance with these newspapers or dance with this mop or uh, dance in the rain or he's gonna uh, dance with he's gonna take this pillow and do this thing and it's every single Gene Kelly number has a thing to it a special thing about it um, that that makes it different than all the other ones whereas you know uh Fred Astaire, uh, Fred Astaire fucks. Yeah. He's, I, I gotta he's say, sexy. He's sexy. I am, I am hurt by both of you guys talking about, both of you reference that all Astaire does is tap when we just got done talking about the cane work. Uh, yeah. I didn't say all he does is tap. tap and cane. <laughs> that's what, that's what Peter said. I, oh. No, I said he's, I said and he's you very said, tap focused. You said that you agree. I said all he does is fuck. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he he I, he's very that cane. He's very tap focused. So all he does is tap dance and tap that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> A moment of silence for uh, that joke. I'm having um, good good times over here. So I also think you got to talk about Rogers because, as we know, yeah. she did everything that Astaire did, but backwards and in heels. And yep. also, you know, led the Red Scare. So that's nice. Um, <laughs> you know, if we're going to talk about her on her own merits, we have to talk about her own detriments as well. Yeah. Uh, hey, yeah. Uh, David, can you can, do you can you brief us on this? Because I uh, don't know that much about uh, about this classic musical yeah. history. People, do you? Know? Oh, yeah. So, so Ginger Rogers was uh, was heavily leading the charge against communism in Hollywood, along with her her momager, her mom manager oh yeah. oh very conservative very conservative did she consider not being bad i think she thought the commies were bad mm-hmm. but uh the deal is, i feel like the deal with a lot of these uh this era is that like you, you just like you're like oh man they could really dance but uh, do not get them started on uh, black people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm not I mean, excusing the activity at all. I'm just saying, like, I feel like every time that I get into classic Hollywood stuff, I'm always like, this person's fucking awesome. And then I get to, like, the fourth paragraph in their Wikipedia. And I was like, this person is a, a, a complex menagerie of, of emotions hat, and feelings right now. Top Hat Top Hat didn't have any people of color in it and I'm guessing that that's probably a good thing because they didn't even do well with the one Italian character, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> that was um, sort of a, a canary in the coal mine for us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It can't the it's imagine if there was an Irish character in it. It would not have gone Ooh, well. Ta -ta 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 -ta. Like, yeah, the, I bet he would have been drunk. No, what I was saying earlier is the the character uh, Bedini is played by Eric Rhodes. Um, and that is that is a an actor who is uh, originally from uh, El Reno, Oklahoma. Wow! So I do I, I do agree. Uh, people from the Midwest doing like Italian type accents is just not. It's it was pretty. It, I mean, it's like it's like it's not racist to us because like you know being like bigoted against Italians in 2019. What does that even fucking look like? Um, but like <laughs> back then, that was a thing. <laughs> It was yeah, just like, absolutely. and imagine if yeah. there was a black person in that movie or uh, somebody, somebody it's like actually much more marginalized. <laughs> like, yeah, this, uh, this is a, it's a fucked up time period. It's a really, uh, yeah, it's terrible, terrible, uh, horrible. I would. I wish I wasn't forgetting who it was, but there was some movie that we did recently where I was looking at a Wikipedia and found out that they were like instrumental in like even at an early like 40s, 50s and 60s, like being part of the, the civil rights movement and advocating for 
you know, equal rights and stuff like that. And it was like some movie that we just did. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. Like, I didn't, I didn't know. Like, there are some of these like older actors that you like, you know, like a Jimmy Stewart or John Wayne, who you're like super aware of their uh, Jane Seaburn. politics. Yeah. She and, was uh, heavily involved with the Black Panther Party and um, as was Jane Fonda. Yeah. yeah uh, but there was, God, there was something, some Gene movie Seaburn. we did. Sorry. What was that? I'm sorry. It was Gene Seaburn from uh, Breathless. Oh, uh, but yeah, there there are those stories, but like, yeah, no one wants to read about Jimmy Stewart's politics either. I'm a Republican. Like you were in It's a Wonderful Life, you asshole. <laughs> I used to be a Democrat. Now I'm a Republican. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the Democrats betrayed me in the 60s. I'm not going to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. There was a strategy I was fall victim to. Um, uh the uh uh david have you so how many of these have you seen are you a big do you have you seen a lot of these astaire rogers movies uh i remember seeing the first one i saw was gay divorcee um which i remember having just like a nine minute song the continental and uh <laughs> it being just the most repetitive thing ever um but i enjoyed it quite <laughs> a bit um i saw top hat obviously i've seen both of those a couple times i've seen uh swing time i've seen follow the fleet and i don't remember if i saw shall we dance and i didn't see yet there's like a few others that i haven't seen uh there is one i'm interested they did a technicolor one especially after you gotta have uh, glorious technicolor breathtaking cinemascope that one yes yes Um, i know that one from the that's entertainment series no i'm uh i forget what it's called um but it's the last movie they did get like they came out of retirement in 1949 the barclays Uh, of broadway and I'm, I'm curious just because, especially after doing Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and Singing in the Rain, it's like, what do they look like dancing in Technicolor? Um, so maybe I'll, maybe I will check that one out. Like 15 Does years older. Else? Yeah. That, that'll probably, it'll probably be sad is what it'll be, but <laughs> I still, I still am curious at the very least. Check it out. Uh, anything else we, uh, want to say about Top Hat before we move on to continue our discussion on Pennies from Heaven? I do want to sort of cap. Uh, my discussion with the fact that Fred Astaire calls his uh, penchant for dancing an affliction. <laughs> it's just—it's like very funny to me. Like he's like, I just can't stop moving my feet. There's something like inno- <laughs> very innocent about it, but also like somewhat dark. Um, like yeah, buddy. Like it's it's two in the morning. People are trying to sleep in this fucking apartment complex. Um, like maybe stop dancing. He's like, I can't help it. If I, this if my is how feet, I relax. If, if my feet stop moving, my brain starts working, and you don't want that. Are you putting dirt on the ground? I got to. <laughs> People said to be quiet. I'm dirting it up the floor. That is when he said affliction, and then 10 or 15 minutes later, he's scattering uh, sand or dirt on the floor to cover the sound. And I was like, oh, is your affliction also meth? <laughs> Uh, I'm sure he was doing something. Drugs were fun back then. I mean, yeah, they would give you they would give you cocaine at the fucking dentist. So, yeah, yeah, a little open opium never hurt anybody. A little opium never hurt anybody, <laughs> except for entire continents. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> except for entire. <laughs> well, that was a lot of opium. Yeah, that was yeah exactly. You know what? You just got a. It's a little opium. <laughs> but here's where, here's where it gets a you. lot of opium. Uh, you just I'm know your check- cocktail. That's all. <laughs> I'm going to check my math quick, and apparently a, a lot of littles add up to a lot. <laughs> oh, fun fact about this movie. Lucille Ball makes an appearance. Wait, when? Uh, she's the flower shop clerk. 
Hmm. I certainly remember a flower shop in this movie. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, yeah, that's I don't have much much else to say. But I'm yeah, sure there's more Evo- to say about its uh, queer coding, but I don't really have anything to say about it except that it's definitely there. <laughs> Horace is an incredibly gay character. Yeah, that's true. The idea that Horace is just sits on the couch and just watches his his young ingenue. Horace and Madge have an understanding. Yeah, they do, they clearly do. But <laughs> like just, they very, I mean, they, that they punch was for show. Come on. <laughs> The yeah. show was a sham. I'm doing this for the Hayes Code. <laughs> when when she punches him, yeah, it's like it's like, come on, come on. I don't believe this. Yeah, not buying it. But yeah, they he, haven't talked to each other once this whole movie. <laughs> he's also just like taking a bath in the room they share, and like Fred just keeps coming in to have conversations with him. He's like, well, don't don't send the girl in here while I'm having a bath. It's scandal. Horace is clearly like the uh, the old beneficiary to to a lot of uh, young talent. And that's fine. That's wonderful. It's beautiful. Yeah. Fred Astaire seems happy about it. Uh, Ginger Rogers seems happy about it at the end of the day. But not at any point before then. Uh, yeah, there's an exchange going on. He's like, just give me my tap medicine to make my feet calm down. <laughs> uh we have fun. Um, we do. do. you guys want to talk about Penny Cut all, Cut all of this out. Um, the, <laughs> uh, the, uh, my favorite scene by far is the gazebo, which I think is my favorite scene in any um, Astaire and Rogers movies. Uh, noting that I haven't seen uh, any other ones in a few years, but uh, even even going back to this movie for the first time in a while, I was like, oh man, I can't wait till they get to that gazebo scene because I, I love it. It's really good. Yeah, the, the gazebo scene is just fucking magical. And you asked me earlier, what do I prefer uh, Gene Kelly or, or Fred Astaire? But I do want to say, I like watching Ginger Rogers with Fred Astaire more than I like watching just Fred yeah. Astaire because I think it satisfies a lot of my like, buddy, yep. you're just like at someone's house at two in the morning. Why why you tapping <laughs> so much? <laughs> why the tap no, happy? Could not agree more. It's why I said the whole thing. Like, it's like the reverse spider effect on me. Like, watching a stare dance is great. Watching those two move together is amazing. Did you notice that when they introduce him in the beginning, they don't introduce him as an actor or dancer or performer, but as a gentleman? As if that's his profession? (laughs) (laughs) All gentlemen can dance. And then, then of Um, course, he acts and sings and dances. Not really acts, but he sings and dances. And I'm like, well, no, he's, he's a performer. He's a performer. Is that a type of performer? So let's just be clear. Her best friend, Madge, or good friend, I guess I don't know the ranking, is husband manages a huge headlining performer, and she never met never met never met Horace. Never met Horace. And, and apparently, I mean, she must be on this cruise or whatever and is aware that like there's probably advertisements. Of, like, with Fred Astaire's face going, like, the singing dancing man. <laughs> the gentleman. Gentleman dancer. And, uh, yeah. He's oblivious. I did I did find it weird, the one scene where... Super um, Mario. Where uh, Jerry, Fred Astaire's character, asks Dale Tremont, um, Ginger Rogers' character, they're in the elevator, and they slip the, um, they slip the guy a 20, and they ask him to turn around, and, and then the camera just sort of looks at the man's face, and it's... I don't know what was happening there. It didn't make any sense to me. Can you explain that? Uh, it was funny. Oh, okay. That was a penny. Pennies from <laughs> reference. Pennies from heaven for the movie work. Is this other movie we're talking about? For the, the talking about the other movie. This guy was doing a scene from that movie. 
No, I I got gotcha. you. As soon as seen uh, from Penny. Also, the ele- Penny the elevator was in the house. Yeah, so that podcasting's hard. It's so hard. All right, <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about it. Let's top hat. Very good. Uh, top two Ginger Rogers Astaire movies. Peter's not going to watch anymore because he got it. <laughs> But uh, there's some, but they're really good. If it comes to your town, see it on the big screen. And oh yeah. yeah, it's other than that. If you're not into it, you're not into it. No, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, if if there if there were one that really clicked with like a you, you were like oh this is some impressive filmmaking in here I'd be like hell yeah but uh but yeah no I think I, I think I got a sense of it and I had my I had a good time with Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, um, Ginger Rogers. Um, Someone who ruined the careers of people just for having uh, slightly left of center political beliefs. Um, so, uh, do we want to talk let's about Let's continue. Let's, yeah, let's pick it back up with Panties from Heaven. Pennies from Heaven. Pennies from Heaven is about a struggling songster. Is that a word? <laughs> Song lyrics. Uh, what do you call them? Song books? <laughs> Songmeister. Songmeister. He sells printed music. Uh, it's like He made it sound so ba- much more interesting. He, said, you, he sells the rights to printed music. Do you remember when Beck released that album that was just printed music? This is basically what what he's doing, except it's not Beck music, I assume. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Far more boring, and because it's the Great Depression, far more unsuccessful. Uh, he's in a sexless marriage, presumably also loveless. Uh, it's very toxic. And he is sort of trying to make his own way in the world. He's trying. Uh, he's trying to live his dream, uh, this dream that has been passed down for, to him from music. And uh, he is traveling around trying to get money to finance his, his dream project. And he uh, he runs into uh, a. A pretty young school teacher um, who he sort of seduces in a very creepy manner um, and knocks her up and then she uh, gets fired because she was knocked up and because her doctor doesn't know about HIPAA laws and he's not aware of the HIPAA laws that are not in existence Not around. Yet. Yeah, yes. they're not in existence <laughs> yet. But he <laughs> still acts like a fucking asshole and tells her boss that she is pregnant out of wedlock, which gets her fired. Um, if you can't sense the theme here, this movie is going to be very depressing. Uh, and she uh, runs back in the ar- tries to run back in the arms of Arthur, but Arthur sort of abandons her and tries to make things work work with his wife because uh, she's got money for his his dream of a record store. Yes. So Arthur's suddenly comfortable with the idea of spending his wife's father's money. Yeah. Uh, so he's he jumps into that and he abandons her. And then when that's not really making him happy, it's not working out. It's not letting him get closer to the dream. Uh, he goes back to Bernadette Peters, who has wait. What been, is the dream? The dream is to 
be a big music guy. His dream he was to be a super record meister. Yeah, his dream was to run a record store, and then he got that and it made him miserable and didn't make him any money. And then his dream was to be like, just live in the music. I don't think there's a right answer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think I think it changes moment to moment. To not be a schnook. Yeah, to live in the reality of the songs, I think is pretty accurate. Yeah. And, and uh, he has this record store and it's not working out and he discovers Bernadette Peters, who's been seduced by Christopher Walken, uh, a local pimp in Chicago, is uh, got rid of the baby for her, helped her get an abortion and then uh, got her some nice clothes. Put her she's on. working it off. Yeah, and she's yeah. working off. Uh, $200 his, clothes. Yeah, because of the clothes that he bought for her and because of the abortion and because he took her in and yada yada. Uh, and then they decide to run away together. Now, at the same time, a young blind woman, <laughs> a young blind homeless. Oh, you forgot woman. to you forgot to introduce the uh, accordion man. The accordion man is somebody that Arthur meets, uh, picks him up and gives him a ride, takes him out to lunch, gives him a little bit of money, uh, treats him like garbage. And then accordion man uh, sees a pretty young blind woman and decides to rape and murder her. But I think Arthur had that idea first, but decided to uh, not to not to murder her. But uh, Arthur was like hitting on her and being yeah. super creepy about, why don't you get in my car? Arthur, yeah. Arthur was trying to uh, take advantage of her. That's the one thing about Arthur is that he's flighty. Uh, he's an opportunist. Arthur- Yes, he's an opportunist. He's flighty. He jumps from he jumps from thing to thing to thing. It's not that Bernadette Peters was the one love that would make his everything make sense. It's that uh, Bernadette Peters was the next thing to chase. Um, well, he's ultimately chasing a fantasy, so nothing's going to bring. Yes, him and then when he finally gets Bernadette Peters, they have this this moment where they smash up the record store and they run away, and then they're in a shitty hotel room with neon light glaring in, and uh, they're no happy. But essentially, Arthur uh, was at the scene where this uh, this blind woman was uh, assaulted and murdered and uh, by the accordionist. And Arthur is basically the cops are like, it was definitely Arthur. Arthur, his footprints were at the scene. We found a cigarette pack, yada, yada. So the cops are looking for him at the same time. Uh, they, uh, Bernadette Peters and... Uh, What's Bernadette Peters? Eileen. Eileen. Eileen and Arthur, um, they go under a bridge to sort of have like a moment and they have a clash and then a reunite. You know, they reunite. They reconcile with one another. They're living together. They're like, they're trying to do it. Yeah. They're they're like, there's that scene where they're in the the hotel and they're just kind of living together and time has passed, presumably. Yeah. Well, and also at this point, at this point, Eileen has kind of put the fantasy away and and like sees Arthur for who he is, uh, while Arthur is still like trying to concoct schemes and plans for them to make it big and stuff like that. Yeah. Eileen's like, you're you're an idiot, but you help pay the rent, and I guess probably, you know. Whatever. Who cares? We're all going to die soon. That's kind of her. Yeah. She, after after being so uh, ground into the dust by Arthur, Eileen has a uh, a moment where she just her, her character shifts. Um, she she essentially is like, "There's no good in the world." Uh, I I tried to break out of my safe, boring l- little cocoon, and now I'm just in this 
awful, awful world where any bad thing can happen and money can run out at any minute. So uh, th- things are not turning out well for them. And then Arthur gets snatched up by the cops uh, because they obviously believe that he murdered this uh, this this blind woman. And, uh, and he runs Arthur- when he sees them. Yeah, and he runs when he sees them. He uh, in an unseen uh, moment, he is uh, convicted of the crime, and then we see him standing next to the rope, and he recites uh, a little bit of a monologue, and then he sings the lyrics to "Pennies from Heaven," which had been sung earlier by the accordion man, the the hobo that was picked up um, in a scene where Arthur helps him. There's a song that he sings, uh, the song "Pennies from Heaven." Yes. So Arthur is pulling from kind of that and the movie is pulling from that. And then uh, either you can interpret either as similar to the ending of Brazil or similar to the ending of uh, Wayne's World. Uh, or the Florida Project. <laughs> or the Florida Project where they're just like, this is fucking grim. Let's do something else. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wayne's World. <laughs> yeah. Let's do the Thelma and Wayne's ending. <laughs> <laughs> I actually the, – the movie that reminds me the most of is The Life of Brian where – um just suddenly there's a kind of a a happy happy uh and that's in that movie there's a happy song over a, a morose image of people getting crucified at the end that's kind of a well fuck it and then this this instead has like the most opulent dance vegas style um uh production number that kind of does the same thing like well that was kind of bleak <laughs> yeah, it has Here's sparse this. image of Arthur standing next to a noose, next to a uh, you know uh, over a back, a very uh, muted backdrop, and then it cuts to this obvious stage of uh, Chicago with the owl passing overhead, and yeah, it does this like you said, a super opulent dance number, um, which is just like so. Just it's jarring in the way the first twenty minutes of the movie are. But all over again, where you're like, wait, is Arthur dead? What reality do we exist in right now? I'm pretty, What's I'm going pretty on? Sure he's dead. Oh, yeah, he's I dead. I mean, it's he's dead. I think it's interesting. It's just from the very start of the movie is you see pennies from heaven and it's this beautiful shot of the, the clouds above the sky and it's bright and it's and then the camera pan uh, tilts or, or moves down as it's going down and then you see the rain and it's still beautiful but it's it's you're getting closer and closer down to earth and like that is like a beautiful image that kind of gives us an idea of where this movie is going to be at throughout and like one of the early lines in the movie uh, after the after the first song i think it is he's just talking about how he's not going to eat and how uh he uh, he'd rather be how he he's uh, he's feeling empty. There's nothing inside him. He's completely empty. And I think that that kind of this is a very kind of would you say nihilistic film? Yeah, it's it's defeatist was the word that came to mind to me. In, in maybe a way. defeatist, but it's but it, it maybe nihilism is I don't know. It's it. I mean, there's there's not a ray of hope yeah. anywhere, or like a character who is like. I guess the blind woman is kind of unambiguously good, and she. I mean, I lean dies. a little, but yeah, she dies. Like, yeah, well, she's is, not really. Is. She's not unambiguously good. She's just nothing. She's she's there as a plot device. She's she is. I think she's kind of the weakest aspect of the film. Honestly, she is a yeah. fri- she is a fridged woman by definition. <laughs> yeah, she, I mean, I, I think it's better that they didn't try to do much with her. 
because doing more with her just to kill her would have been, I think, in some ways worse, right? Yeah. Like, um, but at the same time, she is just, uh, she's there as a symbol of somebody who's already kind of uh, getting through life and depression, getting by and like knows her way around and is still just tamped out for no reason. You know what I mean? Like it's the randomness of it. I also think like there was something that maybe this is like the the prism of 2019 that like spoke to me in the scene where uh, Martin's talking to her though, where like she kind of is like, yeah, I am blind, but I take this path every day and I know what I'm doing and I don't feel any danger. (laughs) The reason I feel danger right now is that there is a quote unquote nice man trying to help me at something I don't need help with and like there's some omnipresent threat that is now like there's that moment where he's like a lot of like in the most like you know disturbing way like a lot of people might want to hurt someone like you and like and it's such a like yeah you might want to hurt someone like me like you're you're trying to white knight some uh to to save me from danger that doesn't exist in my world until you've entered it okay how do do you think it compares to sort of uh, the Coen Brothers. I feel like Coen Brothers would have injected more lightness. I don't know. Like I was thinking of uh, what is uh, the the movie with Billy Bob Thornton? Uh, the yeah, man the man who, who wasn't, wasn't there. there. Yeah. The man who wasn't that's, there. That's for sure. Me a lot. Yeah. That's yeah. What, that's what I was thinking of in particular. I think that they must have been fans of this movie. Yes. Yes. They, they've they've definitely seen it. Feels like it's got so many of their tropes within it but it's doing it before that they had started making movies so well you know that john Turturro, who works with the cohen is a fan because he directed romance and cigarettes oh i didn't see that is that any good no but no? it's kind of an, it kind of is doing a similar thing like a really they're singing in it though, for real right there's real singing yeah, yeah I, that's I a bad this, i don't that's a mistake for those actors yeah, it's it's like it's not a terrible movie, but I remember when I saw Romance and Cigarettes, it felt like, oh, someone's trying to do pennies from heaven again. Can we talk about really quickly the fact that this Yeah, without Gordon Willis. Was this su- super jarring for you guys that the moment that uh Steve uh Steve Martin starts singing into the mirror? Yeah. It well, like I said at the at the opening, like I was just trying to go through Steve Martin comedies. I didn't know what this movie was like, and I was like, what the fuck is this? And I got on its wavelength pretty quick, but it was like, what? And my wife was actually watching. She, I put it on because she was going to bed, and she watched the first 10 minutes of this and was like, what movie are you watching? What is this? Like, it's 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 the 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 song that they choose to open with what's going to be happening in this movie is so jarring compared to Steve Martin that it, it really kind of knocks you off your – your uh, comfort zone and what you expect out of yeah. this movie. Yeah, I saw this, I think, first time in high school, um, not knowing what it was going to be at all, um, except the title. And um, that, I think, was very surprising. And it wasn't until the, uh, I think, the the bank scene that I was like, oh, I, I get it. It's a musical. I get it. Like, because that one song could have just been a moment, you know what I mean? Could have just been a weird moment in a movie. It's cause it's, it is, it's just such an odd choice. Um, it works though. I think it works completely. I have no, no issues with it. The movie started where it needed to start and goes where it needs to go. Well, and what's interesting is that, so little context. So this movie was made, Steve Martin had a lot of clout when he wanted to make this movie. He had seen the BBC original version of this. 
uh, and said that it was the greatest thing he had ever seen in his life and wanted to do a version of it. He, while he was kind of a goofy dancer, he was so committed. He like spent six months learning to tap dance um, so that he appeared, you know, was able to do those scenes and and be relatively competent. And so like this, he spoke about this years later that he still thinks it's one of his favorites, that it's a very artful film that he loves, but he admits that following the jerk with this was a little bit too much whiplash for the audience. And they just didn't understand what was happening. Like there was just no, like, oh, I'm going to – and even the kind of idea of like, oh, funny people eventually go through their serious phase wasn't as much a thing as it is at like post-80s, post uh, – all the SNL cast tries their hand at some sort of drama. I mean, Mel Brooks wanted to direct the, the Elephant Man and he didn't do it specifically because he didn't want to confuse audiences. And yeah, I, I'm I'm like amazed by that. The, the idea of like – of like you don't seeing, want to take away from it. I, yeah, I, I want to see what Mel Brooks's version of the Elephant Man would be like. I don't, I don't get the audience's desire for people to do the same thing. I think that that's like super awesome when people do weird, unexpected things, and I think there's more room for that now. You know, like yeah. I don't think anyone would care if you know um, Adam McKay just started doing. Uh, whatever he's doing now political movies <laughs> if he started doing dick cheney biopics if he started, if he started doing after doing Planet money Nights. episodes <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, yeah it'd be weird but i think i think there's room for it now yeah exactly i mean this is wider the culture is wider now i guess but like uh, you know the uh, audiences were wrong i don't just say like they didn't uh, yeah they were wrong but i get it like like, I get why someone watching this, I don't know what, you know, expecting anything and going, like, I can see why this movie is has a very specific audience of people who like it. Because even, I can see even people that go, I respect, like, I, I went and saw, you know, some of our previous guests have letterbox reviews from this. And there was a lot of, like, three, three and a half star reviews that were, uh, yeah, I get what it's doing and it's doing it very well, but I didn't enjoy it. And... In, in a way, I get that. I just think what it's doing, it's doing so well on both the depressing side. Like, I feel like this movie makes me viscerally, I think, understand the Great Depression more than the fucking Grapes of Wrath does. Like, there is such a sadness to its core that, like, I feel how how bleak and depressing, like, that, that world was for people in a way that, like, all the... Ken Burns documentaries and like other fictional depictions don't hit me as viscerally as this depiction. Yeah, I think going back and f- I think the the key thing here is going back and forth from <clears throat> these moments of of just vi- like a very um, these moments of just reality that are I want to say reality because it's not a movie about verisimilitude. This movie is very clearly on sets. It's very written. Uh, every word yep. that they speak is very thoughtfully written, and I think that that's that's good. It's not a it's not a naturalistic film by any stretch. I don't think. Um, you know, I get what you're saying with the comparison to Altman, but I think it is much more of a um, a written film than Altman's would be. Uh, like definitely, yeah, and and. But going between that sort of very, it's still very grounded in a lot of ways, and this these fantastical musical numbers creates this emotional whiplash that is is I think incredibly effective. Like it's 
you are you're on this emotional journey with him in the sense that like you are feeling his emotions through the productions and then we when you see all that contract and go back in you're you're you feel that suffocation again and then it's almost like it opens up from the heavens again you see the music you you could see the choreography and hear the music and see the set design see the the costumes and you know the world opens up again and everything's okay and you can breathe and then immediately like this for instance we meet her and she's we meet we meet Eileen in her classroom and she's reading a story to her kids right uh, her students and she's barely making it through and she's kind of a little cringe about it and it's I think it's a very difficult scene to watch and then it opens up in one of the most just delightful scenes in the movie where the kids are all wearing yeah. these suits and like <laughs> they're dancing on their pianos and and just it's and she's got this wonderful dress on and it's the song is great it's just a a delight and then what happens contracts again we go back to the real world and the the guy comes in the the principal comes in and beats the kid's hand you know and it's this horrifying moment where you feel that kid's pain you feel her pain you feel everyone's fear and just you're back in that and it's just that that contraction contraction and then expansion contraction expansion i think like is an incredibly effective device that I've never seen used quite like that in a musical. Like, or in well, and any it works movie. every, it, it works every time. Like there is not a, uh, example of that where they do the big opulent, uh, or, you know, small or whatever else, like musical number straight from a Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers movie. Uh, in this, in one instance, very literally, and that when it cuts back to the reality that you don't feel like the air has been like sucked out of your balloon. Like there is a part of you that each time is wishing for it to just stay like this. And each time it, it ends with a some sort of depressing imagery or, you know, kind of back to the, the unreality or the, of the film. And you're just like, ah, oh, damn it. Yeah. Gordon like, Willis did, did such a good job of also of the, the DP and, and Herbert Ross and everyone involved, but did such a good job of, you know, allowing those moments of gloss to breathe and to have that light and just, and then to not go too far, but just the, the sort of the darkness of the noir of everything else is just it's so carefully done because you go just an inch too far in either direction with either of them and it doesn't work the, the glossiness becomes uh, gaudy and it becomes overdone and it's it it loses its emotional weight you know it just becomes silly um or it goes too bleak and it's it's suddenly you're like oh what is this like you, you're, you're suddenly in some kind of porno thing right like it, it doesn't yeah it's it's such a careful balance that to to maintain that emotional like not emotional realism, but that just emotional authenticity um, mm-hmm. that, you know, it's it's such a skillfully, artfully crafted movie too. to be able to actually. It's one thing to talk about this on a conceptual level, but to be able to pull it off is incredible, incredible to me. Yeah. And the other thing that they do a really good job of is they're not always cutting back to the same thing. Like, you know, the bank scene, like the teacher scene, some of these other like the way they're presenting the musical numbers, like it's not like you're just cutting back and forth between like this and that. The way that they intersperse the bigger numbers with like, you know, the elevator scene, which is very compacted, but still feels like a lot more passionate and two people falling in love like you'd find in these movies. Or like the scene where all three of them are just wearing sailor suits and singing into the old timey microphone. Like they're able to switch up the representation of the musicals uh, while still being affecting 
when it cuts back. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah there's a there's a jarringness to the moment when they cut to and cut from the musical. And you can tell that it, it's supposed to be from Arthur's point of view, right? Like Ar- Arthur is like, well, I need to escape into this fantasy right now because real life will kill me. And not all does. of them. He's like, not all he's of like them. a Scrubs. Uh, Christopher Walken's number. Yeah, oh. is, I think is the, is the key is is the key that Eileen is also one of the dreamers, and that they are that's that is why they connect. They are sharing they're sharing this impossible dream. Um, I also think though that Christopher Walken's number is the most grounded in the sense that, <clears throat> depending on what the bar had on their jukebox, 30s version of the jukebox, like that could be something he was just doing. <laughs> like, there's not that much fantastical stuff. Yeah. Like, there's not even costume changes. Like, everyone that's dancing with him, the lighting in the bar doesn't change. Like, uh, you know, it obviously still is a musical number, but it's the least fantastical yeah. of the musical. I think yeah. the fantastical <laughs> element of that song is that he uh, he comes off as charming and seductive. It's a, it's a classic charm song and then immediately follows up with, are you a tease? Because I'll cut you. You know, like, I'll cut yeah, your face. I'll cut like, your face. Yeah, it's, he's scary. And, and right yeah. before that, he's so charming and sexy. And, like, you're almost, like, in along for, on the ride with him. And then it's just... It's it brings you that and to me because the 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 setting does not change, which I think was smart. I think it was just it, the setting really worked for that number. So like, why bother changing yeah. it? But um, like, I think that that is the that is the instead of a scenic change, it becomes that the character change that is the thing that's jarring in that case. And also, that's that's one the one scene with Christopher Walken. Yeah, yeah, he's a he's dancer. the best lip. He is a yeah. When the Fat Boy Slim music video came out, I remember people going like, "Well, he was trained as a dancer," and like yeah. watching this movie from twenty years before that music video really shows how good he is. He's got I'm that Dennis Levant that, thing going on, you know. He does. He's also the best lip singer and finger person in the movie. Like he's got good finger work, and his lip singing is perfect. Yeah, yeah he makes it feel most natural. Um, whereas I think Steve Martin is leaning into the stiffness of it, um, which is totally respectable as well, and it works for his different sequences. I think the fact that uh, Tom uh, Christopher Walken is supposed to be sort of sexy and alluring, even though he's like dangerous, and maybe because he's dangerous, um, the, because of that, he needs to. Um, it needs to come off a little bit more naturally, right? Like he's dancing on a pool table. He's not dancing on the moon. Um, the people in the bar dancing, like you just said, the people in the bar around him are just kind of like pulling a little number with him and they're pulling on his suspenders and yada, yada. It's not like in that scene where uh, Bernadette Peters, the whole class uh, turns into a like big jazz band. Like that's literally impossible. <laughs> like it's like, that's part of the reason it's so magical and random. But the the Tom scene kind of, it needs to be a little more natural because you've been grounded in the dirt and you need a little bit more of like a relatable magic at that point. Yeah, I, I think the, like, my biggest criticism of the movie is that I think we missed out on the follow-up scene where Christopher Walken performs the abortion. <laughs> um, <laughs> could have been, could have been great. Kapow! Could have been great. Oh, uh, sorry. I don't know if that's... This, the way that this movie both gives women absolutely no dignity and also grounds it in the fact that, like, it's saying, like, yeah, 
Women are very often mistreated by men who are just searching out some dream or just want a little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit of satisfaction before they go on with their day. Like men are abusive, awful assholes. And the movie accepts that as a fact as rather than like a, a uh, not all men thing is. Yeah. It, it, Ends up coming back around, I think. At the beginning, it's very frustrating. You're just like, are we just going to have to watch Misogynist this whole movie? And then by the end of the movie, I'm like, yeah, that's part of the movie's thesis is that, you know, who suffers most in in a, a degrading, dehumanizing, uh, humiliating environments? Women. They really bear the brunt of it way more than men. I think the most, like, actually low-key, hardest to watch scene of that is uh, the principal firing uh, Eileen. Oh, my God, yeah. Because it goes on so long, where it's just like, well, of course we're going to fire you in your dream. And Burnett Peters is so great as she's like reacting to this, but like, it's clearly sad that she's losing out on her job, and also just feels totally trapped in a society that like she has to accept that that's the reality. That like, well, you're pregnant out of wedlock, get out of here, and like, there's nothing she can do um, at that moment. And the way that it ends with, well, you know, I've always wanted to. Um, I've always, I've always hoped for the best for you. Anyways, here's a wad of cash. Good luck out there. Like that, there is, and the scene goes on for like three or four minutes of him just explaining to her why he's going to have to fire her. But good luck, and like it is so, like in a in a in a movie filled with hard scenes to digest and watch. I think that that is low key one of the hardest. Yeah, the whole and the fact that he seems to have some sense of compassion for her and he was like, it was probably a man's fault. Anyway, you know, it needs to be done. You're like, wait, why? Why, why does this need to be done? And I mean, it, it lined up very well with the uh, the Alabama and Georgia abortion laws going on right now. Uh, it lined up very well with that because it's it it makes you realize that you're like, oh, well, um, not only when you have a baby that you didn't want to have, uh, when you have that baby that you didn't want to have, uh, you also uh, have no uh, economic options when you come out the other side. So uh, good luck with you. Well, and there is just something about the idea of him going, like, acknowledging that this is unfair to her, but still, like, perpetuating the unfairness to her. In, like, a way that could leave her destitute or dead or, you know, anything else. Like, a, having a job during the Great Depression when you're, you know, uh, when you're a woman who's not married is probably, like, pretty fucking important. He's like, yeah, this is bullshit. Anyways, fuck you. Get out of it. Like, there is something about someone acknowledging that uh, – acknowledging? Uh, acknowledging that disparity but also, like, but I'm a man in society and that's what I'm going to do to you. Like, there, there is – it's like that, that – that, uh, the the recognition that what you're doing is bad and not someone's fault and then you still continue to that in some ways is like worse yeah yeah the fact that he he's not blinded to how unfair uh this is and how much this is going to ruin her life like he hands her a wad of cash and he's like this is literally nothing <laughs> like this is barely gonna scratch anything um that the fact that he's not blind to it makes it even more cruel he's aware of exactly what she's going to go through and he's not willing to fight the fight for her 
No, or and and, well, and I mean, he's the principal. Of the, he's the one making des- the decision. Like as far as he's just like, yep, can't have anyone thinking imp- Im- uh, improperly about my school. Get out of here. Um, and Bernard Peters is so good as like the reality and the sadness and the feeling of being trapped washes over her face. And we should mention, even though we talked about this movie not getting much recognition it did actually from from the award seasons yes uh like this it, it was she had a golden globe Academy. she won a golden globe <laughs> martin was also nominated for a golden globe and it was nominated for three non-acting academy awards for like set design and some other stuff like but she she won the golden globe for this and she fucking deserves it one like she is by far the most um heartbreaking and like best best actor in this movie in one of the hardest like she doesn't get to do as much of the stuff that Martin gets to do, but her like transition from like fun and like the the teacher scene or when they're um, talking about the elevator stuff to like just just the the overwhelming bleakness that she sees for her future and her life is just amazing. She she a hundred percent deserved it. And I think that um, the fact that she she surprised me like I. Uh... I mostly know her as, uh, you know, the the silly comedic actor from The Jerk and from lots of sitcoms. She's been in lots of sitcoms since back in the day. Um, like Ugly Betty and she's in Smash, which I guess is sort of funny. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but she's just immediately accepted her for all of her, her, um, her many sides. Like the fact that she could seamlessly roll a funny moment into a sad moment and roll a romantic moment into a very funny moment like under the bridge with arthur all that stuff should be super tragic but she kind of like rolls between being like you know a just a world weary just burned out lady and being a little swept up in the dream just a little bit and the way she sort of threads that needle is just like ugh. There's yeah, so, I think so I think this this and uh and into the woods are the career highs for her. This is like this is maybe her one of her best performances uh acting especially. What um I know we're we're running short on time here especially late for you David. What else uh, what other scenes or moments do we want to talk about here before we wrap this up? I think that the the scene that comes together most for me is and it's 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 early on is um it's not as bleak as the other ones. It's just the diner scene with um the accordion man and Arthur and ha- the song that comes with it the, the the titular pennies from heaven and just everything about that dance um that number just this the music is beautiful the way the set opens up in this in this romantic gorgeous way uh, like you're in that you're in that diner set and it looks so grounded it looks like such a real diner set or like a real diner it looks like it could be a real diner and then it op- just the way the wall opens up and you can see the entire diner and outside is is just the rain and you could see both ways and th- then the dance with all the beautiful coins that are kind of like move dancing with him in the air you know um that's that's a gorgeous scene it's just so well done um it's not stating the themes of the movie but it's it is um it is talking it is it, it's it, it is a now does somebody singing about something that arthur will never have yeah you know the ability to look around and just see 
see the the beauty in the world and it's coming from a character that is going to go on to do something horrendous and there's a lot going on in your in in that scene like why is it why is this the character that is our uh that is the vessel for that this imperfect vessel for that you know um, well i think that kind of speaks to your idea that the film is kind of nihilistic because in that moment when you're first watching it you're like look at martin yeah he's he's not well off but he has a house he has a wife and he's being an asshole to this like uh homeless accordion player who like has this beautiful like ideas of life and has a beautiful number to kind of convey that through the song pennies from heaven and then like he goes on to murder uh, a blind woman. Yeah. So it's like, I mean, that that is almost like the, the dictionary definition example of nihilism in a movie. Yeah, yeah. There's no, there's no, there's nothing easy about anything in this film. Um, but I, I mean, I think it's, it's, it. I don't think this movie has one thing to say exactly, and I yeah. think that's one of the benefits of it. It's not like this movie wanted to say, if only people had. If only he'd look around and been happy with what he had, because let's be real, like everything around yeah. him sucked, right? His life was mm-hmm. shitty. His wife is a prude. His wife is um, kind of obnoxiously like prudish about language and, and you know, probably was hard to live with. Um, his, his He was pretty broke in terms of his job. You know, he wasn't able to get alone. These things are bad and there are things that are good, but like it's... It's, it wasn't just his inability to see the good in things. It, it's, yeah. you know, it's, 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 it, the world is fundamentally broken and it broke him, somebody who probably already was prone to breaking. And, uh, you know, it's, it's about what it means to be a human being in a world that's cruel and, and uncertain and sells you these lies uh, that sometimes are true, but mostly are lies. This is, as again, it's sometimes it's true. Sometimes he's able to find these moments of happiness uh, and, and, uh, you know, false epiphanies. And it's, you know, so it's, it's wraps up a lot of stuff into that moment of these, these conflicting ideas. And it, it, it's, it's like a lot of my favorite art is, is the kind of thing that, the bad, the, the stuff that's like good or whatever is like stuff that I feel like I'm like, oh, I enjoyed that and I totally get it. And I'm like, I can sort of tear, I can, I can like take this apart. But the really great stuff, the stuff that I keep going back to is stuff like Sondheim, where every time you take it apart, there's always more that you didn't realize was there. And I think this movie definitely has that where it's like, there's, it's too complicated to, f- to have one kind of guiding principle for how you, analyze the movie and think about the movie and talk about the movie it's it's too much going on with it and it's too it's it's too complicated and it's too much like real life to do that well and i that's a that's a great kind of summation of the movie but i think one one point i kind of want to build off to kind of wrap up my final thoughts on this is that uh you mentioned like where do they find their escape and they find their escape quite literally in this movie in in the movies, in that in that idea that life was could be grand and could be opulent and could be romantic and amazing and stuff like that, where near the end of the movie, uh, they go see Follow the Fleet, the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers movie, uh, and they watch it. And pretty soon they're up uh, silhouetted against the screen dancing. And then eventually the fantasy kind of blossoms to life and they're in the movie uh, doing the dance uh, with the same hairstyles and clothes and everything like that. And I do think uh, we, we referenced this, but um, so Fred Astaire couldn't stop them from using Follow the Feet because, of course, stars didn't have uh, much 
authority over those kind of things uh, at the time and, and hell, even today, they'd have probably trouble trying to stop the use of their imagery, but maybe a little bit easier time. Uh, and he was he was furious. He thought this movie was was um, was terrible. He said it was like offensive for them to uh, take this like wonderful, beautiful thing and use it to ca- innocent time and cast out. And I think that's kind of perfect, right? Because this movie is about how it's not like the Astaire Rogers movies were bad, but they didn't reflect what was going on at the time. And and even escaping that through movies, like we see Arthur, it almost, it has an unhealthy effect. And that's something Peter and I talk about, like how much movies can influence people or art influences people sometimes in a positive effect, but there is, there is an effect that occurs, especially when you're consuming it so much. And, you know, Arthur escapes in fantasy and fantasy sequence and sees this and and has has kind of again like that is that is part of what the the world and capitalism and everything else has definitely driven him to a certain point but then like what's kind of pushed him over the edge is this idea that things could just be better like he's been sold a lie and so in in a, in some ways even though i don't think fred astaire like i have nothing bad to say about him that i know him of but like his quote is kind of perfect because this movie is about how that everything that people went and saw to escape was a lie at a time when those lies hurt the most. And so, of course, the person who was kind of didn't have to live in that world and didn't have to experience it is is offended that people would ever like imply that these movies could have potentially had a negative effect on on people or potentially – Giving people hope at a time when, like, hope should have came from uh, government and, and other institutions, but they didn't have that. So, like, Fred Astaire hating this movie is kind of perfect because it, in a lot of ways, it, it is a lot of things, but it is a criticism of um, the the system itself using uh, movies, not as – not always as propaganda, but in some ways kind of capitalizing on the idea that, yeah, look at this. Look at this. This is great, guys. Uh, meanwhile, we're going to cut taxes for rich people and eliminate benefits. But, oh, my gosh, the American dream, dancing with your lady. And, you know, I I think one of the things this movie has to say is that that happens. And here's, here's kind of those two things contrasted in the most uh, – harsh way possible the setting in the 1930s really pissed off uh fred astaire uh because he he saw the 1930s as a very innocent era one of the greatest surges in Ku Klux Klan membership. Uh, the Japanese were behead- having beheading contests in Nanking. Um, people were committing suicide for insurance money for their family, so much so that insurance companies had to change policies. Uh, internment camps were uh, were rising for uh, Japanese citizens. Um, he also means segregation. <laughs> yeah, segregation, uh, isolationism, and ignoring the Jewish plight in Europe. Um, so yeah, so the, the Fred Astaire was clearly wrong on that point but i think looking at the pain of the past and how hard it was to exist in in certain eras really helps that that perspective helps you focus on what is wrong about the era you're living in what what are the the financial hurdles you're you're going through um people around you are going through um how it compares to the past uh, what to look out for politically like all all that shit really helps you gain a sense of perspective about history makes history feel realer to you so 
That being said, uh, the fact that they set this in the 30s made me appreciate it so much more because I felt like I had not heard stories like this told in this specific way because it, musicals have a, have a way of humanizing characters, even even kind of assholes. Um, like we talked about with uh, with the fact that Arthur is essentially, and most every man in this movie is essentially an asshole. Even the cops are creeps to uh, Jessica Harper. Cops, creeps. The cops' job is basically there to be like, we have a, we believe your husband is a murderer, and also uh, tell me about this weird sex stuff you guys are into. <laughs> the most decent man in this movie is the fucking banker. So there is no decent man in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's, that's fucking wild. And, uh, the fact that it's set in the 1930s makes that so much more potent because it allows you to view it from an outside perspective. And it also allows you to humanize people in a way that you might not necessarily give the same amount of humanization to people going through, um, I don't know, the 2008, uh, uh, depression, you know, like, the fact that you didn't live through it almost makes makes me at least uh, have a, a better sense of what their struggle was when it's depicted this way. So, yeah. Yeah, perfect. Well, that is a that's a great way to wrap up this month. Our third successful. Uh, well, maybe our second successful, but our third overall musical May. Uh, and we're moving on to a new month. But before we do that, David, do you have anything you'd like to promote? You can uh, you can see Drawfee on YouTube, or uh, if you want to get Draw Drawfee episodes a week early, go to dropout.tv and subscribe to College Humor's Dropout channel. It's a streaming service. It's like four bucks a month or something like that. It's really cheap, and you get those episodes, and there's a lot more. Um, <laughs> And if you want to see my stuff, the stuff that I do for myself or have done um, in the past, primarily as a student, so don't expect much, <laughs> you can go to davidclark.studio. Um, that's D-A-V-I-D-C-L-A-R-K-E dot studio. And all my information's on there. You can follow me on Twitter. That's David Clarkie, D-A-V-I-D-C-L-A-R-K-I-E. And... Um, I'm available uh, for uh, commission work. If you need an editor, a freelance editor, uh, get in touch with me and um, I will be happy to talk to you uh, about that. But um, yeah, you can see my work there and on Drawfee and that's basically it. Well, that's awesome. And we, uh, you have a ton of great work out there uh, and we, we love having you on. So hopefully you'll join us again soon. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. Uh, I always like coming on. Awesome. Yeah, you are, you are welcome any time peter i'm excited to announce our next month uh which we haven't announced anywhere even on our facebook page yet uh except one secret little executive producer who's been helping to organize it we we are uh we're doing pride month for june and we have partnered with uh, <laughs> sorry <laughs> uh we we mentioned sometimes on uh in this i'm excited that this so it's my dj this pod <laughs> no, it's great. Uh, the 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 pod uh, the podcast kind of originated out of the dissolve uh, film uh, film website and then a later Facebook group. So these are we reached out to uh, members of the dissolve who are uh, identify as LGBTQA plus. That's how I got on the show, had, by the way. You had you had been wanting to get more uh, more queer folks on the show, and yes. yeah, you uh, you reached out to us. Pre appreciated. 
I forgot about yeah. that because I I was just like David's coming on, awesome. <laughs> because we, yeah. we had already had a, like a pretty like normal sort of online buddy relationship, and it yeah. was it, it was an excuse yeah. for us to talk. It was su- such a great group. Carrie has been so fucking supportive and so helpful of the show, uh, exec producer, and uh, she has connected us with some amazing folks, and we're very very fucking excited for next month for that reason. Yes. Yeah, so uh, and we so we, yeah we're doing Pride Month and the the movies were cho- just like we did uh ladies fright night last october uh where we're not picking the movies uh our guests are picking the movies uh and the 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 kind of criteria for this one was was open it was whatever you want to pick that you want to talk about for pride month uh it could be a, a queer focused movie it could not be uh you you can come on and uh talk about it with us so i'm very excited um so yeah so for pride month uh we are still figuring out exact order uh, and uh, even some name pronunciations of our guests, which is very important. So uh, here is the guest's first name and the movie they picked, and we'll talk well, so much more about this in the next coming weeks. But we are doing uh, Bound with uh, Luana, But I'm a Cheerleader with Joey, Closet Monster with Liam, and Funeral Parade of Roses with Caitlin. Uh, and only one of those movies have I seen before. Funeral which Parade is Bound. of Roses so rules. I, I uh, bought the Blu-ray. just came this week. So I'm very excited. You're in for a treat. Uh, yeah. The only one I've seen is Bound, and I love Bound it, so. rules too. Bound is great. Bound, Bound is a is great so double good. feature with the Handmaid, uh, the Handmaiden. Oh, that movie! Uh, yeah, that's a great call. Yeah, right, yeah. right, yeah, right. Perfect, perfect, perfect double feature. It is like five hours. Those are two of my uh, two of my favorite <laughs> movies, and I never really connected the two in that way. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, very excited for next month. Uh, we we've hinted before that this is the month that I think Peter and I are most excited about this. This year, um, even though, spoiler alert, we're probably going to do another Ladies' Fright Night in uh, October because it was amazing last year. So, And there was just, uh, too, many, there was just too many movies to fit in so one So many so. movies. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was a blast. And you know what? Peter and I get to choose uh, the movies for this podcast 95% of the time with literally uh, two ex- two exception months. And so it's really it's really fun not just to have uh, some new people on the show and, and returning guests uh, be able to pick a movie, but also talk about a movie that they're very passionate about. And especially with this month, uh, showing uh, sh- bringing us movies that uh, 75% of them I've never seen before. So uh, I think – is that the same for you, Peter? Have you only seen uh, Bound or have you seen any of the other ones? I've seen But I'm a Cheerleader and I've seen Bound. Okay. Uh, but I'm a cheerleader has been on my list forever. So this is a perfect, it's a fun movie see it for the first time. Yeah. So yeah, very excited. Uh, but thanks again for, for joining us for another musical edition. I think it is mission accomplished overall with Peter. We'll see if, we'll see if there's a fourth version. Sometimes it's good to cap off a trilogy, start something fresh next May, but, uh, we still had like, uh, two other ideas for a musical May month. So maybe we'll make it a pentology. Is that what you call that? <laughs> Uh, I know four movies is a quadrilogy because of the alien box. <laughs> yeah, pe- so we do four. It's a quadrilogy. Uh, pen- yeah, pen- pentology. The pentatoke, I think, is it. We'll see. Trilogy, quadrology, pentology, sexology, septology, octology, chronology. <laughs> There's only like twenty total. Decology. <laughs> Good night. Good night. Good night.
folks. Thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. Thank you so much for listening to our show. And we've got just a few quick announcements for you. There ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs, baby. If you'd like to talk to us, uh, tell us we're stupid. Tell us we're beautiful. The quickest way to get to us is our Facebook group, facebook.com slash we love to watch. Or our website, WLTWpodcast.com. Leave us a comment. Tell us we're doing a good job. Only tell us we're doing a good job. We're so sensitive. We're sensitive boys. We're soft boys. And uh, if you'd like to help other people, if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost, we don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available if you don't use iTunes. We're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, Tune in. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. <laughs> That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page, especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, let us know what you guys are thinking. And again, above all else, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch.